0: Morning, everyone. Morning, everyone. Welcome to Restoration. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. It's great to be with you all uh, this morning for worship. Whether you're new and visiting us, I think you've heard uh, all the staff actually this morning. We don't often have all of us uh, full time staff up on stage. Uh, But we've all greeted you. We love to welcome visitors and new people. So if that's you this morning, thank you for coming or whether you're a longtime member here. We're glad you're in worship with us this morning. We're continuing in a series, as you know, if you've been here, in the book of 1 Samuel. It's a long book. We've been in it chapter by chapter. We're actually skipping two chapters this morning. I think it might be the first time, right, Dan? It was the first time we've skipped any chapters. Um, The reason for that is last week Dan was in chapter 21. He shared about this pursuit of David by Saul. Saul is chasing after David. He's trying to find him uh, to kill him because he knows David's supposed to be the next king. Uh, David is on the run in the wilderness. Uh, Dan shared uh, that story from chapter 21. And he also mentioned that that pattern continues over the next few chapters. So chapter 22 and 23, we aren't going to read this morning. You're welcome to go back and read that on your own if you have a chance. But that's what happens. It's Saul continuing to pursue David in the wilderness. It also mentions a few different times the Philistines who are at war with Israel at this time. So Saul is kind of jumping back and forth in his role as the king and fighting the Philistines and then pursuing David. And that's where we pick up in chapter 24 this morning. If you turn to page 246 in the Pew Bible, that's where chapter 24 begins. But as you're doing that, I want to start with a short story. I want to start with a short story about the Reverend Burke Parsons. Now, I doubt any of you know that name. Maybe if you're someone that's in full-time ministry, you might have heard his name before. But that's only because he's the pastor of a somewhat well-known Presbyterian church in Orlando called St. Andrew's Chapel. Now that church isn't famous because of Pastor Burke, it's famous because of his predecessor, the Dr. R.C. Sproul, who maybe a few more of you might have heard about. He's a famous theologian and author. Uh, He's written a number of books that we even have here at the church. I think it's fair to say that Dr. Sproul was um, famous in Christian circles all over the world. He had a name that people would know. But what if I told you that Burke Parsons, who's now the pastor of that church, was one decision away from not only dwarfing Dr. Sproul's fame, but actually being famous enough that almost every person in here would know who he is. Now, the reason for that is that when Pastor Burke was 16 years old, living in Florida, at the urging of his mother, he auditioned for a new music group that was being formed. And A couple weeks later, he and, other, he and four other teenage boys were selected as the five members of a new boy band that was going to be called the Backstreet Boys. Now, there was only one problem for Burke. At the age of 15, a year before that, he had felt a very clear, strong call from God to be a pastor. And so in the midst of the photo shoots and the marketing campaigns to build the buzz for this new boy band, he was wrestling with this internal decision he had to make. This music career, or this career potentially as a pastor. His father had passed away a year before. His family didn't have a lot of money. His sister had medical uh, issues, serious medical issues that were going to require a lot of expensive treatments. And so a music career would solve a lot of those struggles, not to mention the fame and the success that it offered to Burke. Should he pursue this career in music that seemed likely to produce everything that he? wanted or needed, or should he pursue what he felt was a very clear call to pastoral ministry? Now, as an aside, Pastor Burke did not fall into the trap of believing that these two options, uh, one was inherently better than the other. I want I want to take a moment and just say to you, this isn't the case of a, a ministry job being better than a non-ministry job. That's, that's not what we believe. That's not the point of this illustration. The issue was that Pastor Burke had already felt a very clear, direct call from God to something else, particularly in his case, pastoral ministry. But he was faced with this other great opportunity, this other open door into this other potential career. And there were a lot of voices around him trying to persuade him what to do. He said it this way, Many of the Christian friends and adults around me That it seemed like this music opportunity was a door that God had opened for me. But the danger, he says, of this sort of open door theology is just because a door is open doesn't mean that we should walk through it. See, Burke recognized that fame and money and great musical career are not wrong things. They're not bad things, but they could be wrong or bad for a particular person or in a particular moment, as they would be for him if he rejected what he felt like was a very clear call from God to something different. That's similar to what we're going to see David experience this morning. Look with me at the first four verses of chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in the front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave." And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. We'll stop there. So Saul returns from fighting the Philistines. His scouts say, Saul, we know we found David. We know where he is. So Saul takes part of his army. He goes to the area that David is supposedly hiding in. He goes into this cave, apparently alone. Why would the king of Israel go into a cave alone with no bodyguard and no soldiers? Well, we're told that he had to go to the bathroom. That's often not a place you would bring others with you. But of all the caves to go into, he happens to go into the cave where David, his enemy, and his men are hiding. So here is Saul, David's enemy in a compromised position, no bodyguard, no protection, in the dark, surrounded by David and his men, who he doesn't even know are there. Webster's Dictionary defines providence as God's power guiding human destiny. Everybody reading this, everyone in the cave is thinking This is God's providence. David's men say it in verse 4. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands. This is it. David, this is your moment. This is your opportunity. This is your open door to everything that you've wanted, everything that God has promised you. This man has been trying to kill David This is the man that God has promised he's going to replace as king. This is his enemy who's been pursuing him in the wilderness. And he's standing unaware and unprotected right in front of you and your warriors. What is David going to do? Now, my guess is, it's just a guess, but maybe I'm wrong. I think most of us have never been faced with this particular decision, the decision of whether to take a life or not, but I do think this morning that we've all been faced with this type of decision, a decision where an open door appears in front of us, an opportunity comes and we have a decision to make about our lives that's going to have significant Repercussions. It could be a job offer, and whether you accept it or not. It could be whether to, to date or marry a particular person, to have a child, to move to a new city, to leave a relationship or a friendship, to pick a major, to pick a career, to go to a new church, to make decisions about religious faith. Each one of us has been and will be faced with countless significant decisions throughout our lives, maybe not as dramatic as this scene this morning with David and Saul and whether to, to take his life or not, but equally significant to our future, to what our life is going to look like after that decision. So how do we make those kinds of decisions? When we're faced with opportunities, when we're faced with open doors, how do we decide what to do? How do we decide what God wants us to do? That's our big question this morning. And I'm about to read the rest of the chapter, and as I do that, we're going to see what decision David makes. We're going to see why he makes that decision, and then what insight that might have See if we can learn anything from the guardrails that helped David make his decision. So continue with me now, picking up in the second half of verse 4 where I left off. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you to see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And You have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. Now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. So David had this incredible decision to make. You can imagine how much pressure and uncertainty he would have been feeling at that moment. All of his men telling him that this is God's providence. God has provided this opportunity for you. If you've ever been faced with a significant opportunity, you know you begin to imagine what each outcome might lead to in your life. David's probably imagining no longer being on the run, no longer being under threat of death, sitting on the throne that he knows that God has promised him. How tempted would you be if you were David in this moment to seize this opportunity, to take this open door right in front of you? But David makes a decision not to kill Saul. Why? Why would David pass up this golden opportunity, this open door? Well, I think the rest of the chapter gives us two reasons. and They have to do with David's relationship with God. The first reason is in verse 6. You look back at that with me. Instead of killing Saul, David secretly cuts off part of his robe, and then he says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, Saul, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. See, David's first reason for not taking this opportunity is that he trusts in God's commands. David's relationship with God is such that he trusts God's commands and he trusts—excuse me—he treats them with the utmost respect and reverence. When David says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing, that word there, forbid, means that it would be unholy, it would be profane to do this thing. In other words, it would be sinful to kill Saul. Why? Well, David tells us, Saul is God's, anointed one. Now we know from earlier chapters that God's removed his spirit from Saul. We know that God has promised the kingdom to David. We know that Saul is not a good king. He's not obedient to God, but he is still in the role of king of Israel. He still is in the role of king over God's people. And so however badly he's doing that, However true it is that he should step down and allow David to assume the kingship, Saul is still the king at this time. He's still anointed. He's still set apart by God for this role. And so David knows, yes, Saul is not going to be the king forever. He is evil. It is, he has rejected God. I am and should be the king but it's not my job to take care of that. It's not my role to shortcut whatever plan God might be doing whenever I see an opportunity to do it. Because God sets Saul apart. And so if there's an opportunity to touch him, I'm not allowed to take that even if it appears to all the world that this is an opportunity from God. David recognizes this distinction between his choice and what might appear providence, but also what God has clearly commanded. You see, this resistance of temptation by David to kill Saul is what sets David apart from Saul. Saul saw opportunities throughout the book so far to benefit himself, even if it meant minor, small violations of God's law, and he would take them. Back in chapter 15, we saw that Saul kept some of the sheep for the people that God had told him to destroy. He thought he knew better than God's command. David would have never thought to violate God's command in that way. And it's that trust in God's commands that makes David a man after God's own heart. Because God's commands flow from God's heart. Even when we don't understand how or why God commands something, we have to trust that those commandments come from God's good, loving heart. So because of David's relationship with God, he is absolutely committed to God's heart, and therefore committed to God's commandments and trust them. Even when it means not walking through this open door, everyone tells him he should walk through. An open door that looks like it would solve all of his problems. Saul sees God as a means to get what he wants. David sees God as someone that he has a covenant relationship with. And therefore he trusts God his commands. The second reason, David goes out of the cave, he confronts Saul, he says, look, I could have just killed you in that cave. You're listening to all these people who say that I want to kill you, but I just had the chance, and I didn't, because you're God's anointed king. But then he gives us this second reason in verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord judge between me and you. He's saying to Saul, there is someone above you and I, above our conflict, that's actually in control here. I don't have to kill you in that cave. Because there's more going on here than just this conflict between you and I. God is involved in this. And I know that God And I know what he's promised me. I'm sure about what he's promised me. He's promised to bring mercy to the righteous and justice to the unrighteous, you, Saul. So I'm free to trust in God's promises, fulfilling God's timing. David's second reason for his decision is that he trusts in God's promises. He doesn't know how God Is going to continue to protect him. He doesn't know how God is going to make him king. But he trusts God's promise to do it. And so he's free from the burden of trying to find and take a shortcut to fulfill that promise. He's able to look at an opportunity like Saul standing right in front of him and pause and ask, Is this truly an opportunity, an open door from the Lord? He doesn't have to rush to seize it. He doesn't have to grab it before it disappears. He can be patient. He can be wise. He can be discerning because he trusts that God is the great promise keeper. So where can this kind of trust from David this morning be helpful for us? What decisions do you find yourself faced with today or that are coming in the future where trusting and resting in God's commandments and his promises might help you? Maybe you've been faced with what appears to be an open door, but deep down, you know that it wouldn't be faithful to God's commandments. It's easy to be tempted and to think, well, I mean, I know this sort of goes against What God says but just in a small way maybe you really know it goes against God's commandments but you're angry at those commandments those commandments are blocking you from something you really want it's easy to think well that command doesn't really make any sense anyway or it can't really mean that or if God really loved me he wouldn't actually mean that command for me That can't really be what it means. And that happens all the time in our world today, where God's commandments are dismissed by the world because they prevent things that we want. Are we willing to trust God's commands even when those commands are hard? What about his promises? You may be thinking, well, I don't often get what David had, this very direct promise from God that he would be the king. It's easy to think, because you know, if I had that kind of direct, clear promise from God, then of course I would know which doors to walk through or not walk through. But if you're honest with yourself, if I'm honest with myself, I reject God's direct, clear promises to me every time that i sin every time that i act against him god promises that my earthly possessions won't satisfy me but then i think well yeah but if i just had this one possession this amount of money this job this amount of savings for retirement then i'd i'd be satisfied that would be enough That would make me happy. And that one thing, that amount of money, that job, that savings, that retirement savings, those aren't bad things to have. But they become bad things to have when my decision-making is driven by them. When they take up the place in my heart that only God owns Rather than resting in God's promises about my identity, I think that it's my reputation or my achievement that defines me. So my decision-making is then framed by a desire to achieve and to earn a reputation so that I can feel safe and I can feel whole, I can feel purposeful. Where do those type of things happen for you? What significant decisions do you face where your life should be guided by trusting God's commandments and promises? In our daily Bible reading plan, we've been reading through the Psalms. I think it was last Monday we read Psalm 17, and we know that it was written by David, although we aren't necessarily sure at what point in his life it was written. But as I read it this week, it was easy to imagine David writing it after an event like this. I'm going to read it for us, and as I do that, listen for the ways that David trusts in God's commands and God's promises. What it says. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regards to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand keep me as the apple of your eye hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence my deadly enemies who surround me they close their hearts to pity with their mouths they speak arrogantly they have now surrounded our steps they set their eyes to cast us to the ground he is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush arise o lord confront him subdue him deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Can you hear that? By the word of your lips I've avoided the way. The violent, trusting God's commands. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men whose portion is in this life, trusting God's promises. And what was the key to all of that for David? How was he able to have that kind of trust? That final verse. As for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David's eyes are on God. He doesn't see an open door, he sees the face of God. That lets him see everything else in its proper context. Do you know God in that way? Does God grab a hold of your heart like that this morning? Rest in Him, trust in Him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story from David's life where what seems like a a perfect scenario seems the end of our conflict that we've been reading about for chapter after chapter, yet David doesn't seize it. As we ask why, help us to recognize that these are the types of decisions that we face, opportunities that may or may not be from you. How do we discern? How do we know what to do? Help us to rest in your commandments, to rest in your promises, to know you and your words so well that those commands and promises come readily to our heart and our mind in those moments. With us this morning, in your name we pray. Amen.